This is the Education Gadfly Show. In fact, I think you, you really took it up or down to another level, David, uh, with your pessimism, which was impressive. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Robin Lake. Robin, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Always great to be here. Uh, well, Robin, for those of you somehow that don't know, is the director of the Center for Reinventing Public Education. So great to have you with us. And as always, also David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Hey, how's it going, David? It's going all right. <laughs> it's been, uh, wow, such a couple of weeks, months, years. Yeah, uh, I must be 40 by now. <laughs> hey, I wish I could be. 40. What are you talking about? It must be 40 by now that throw us under the bus. Oh my goodness. What a weekend. I was with my family downtown, uh, Washington, DC. Probably saw the scenes, Robin. I'm not sure if you were out there in Seattle, but wow, it's uh, amazing to see what's happening all over our country right now in cities big and small. I think I'm especially inspired by these stories of these tiny little towns. I think I heard somebody say on NPR the other day, if, if you picture the town that you think would never have a civil rights protest, that town is having a civil rights protest right now. Yeah, uh, pretty. homemade signs all over my neighborhood. It's cool to see the kids really mm -hmm. coming out and caring right now. Yeah, that's no, pretty amazing. All right. Well, we are here, though, to talk about what we thought was the big story for 2020, which is, of course, the pandemic. So let's do that in Ed Reform Update. Robin, you and your colleagues there at SERPI have been doing an amazing job tracking this right out of the box. We're the first ones to really uh, set up a way to track a sample of school districts and how they were responding, as well as a sample of charter networks. And you continue to do great work and analysis. So thank you for that. It's been incredible national service that you've done. You've also been looking at how uh, the plans for the summer look, and I assume you'll be looking at their plans for the fall as well. But let's just pause here for a moment. There's There's been some articles in the press last few days trying to make sense of what happened this spring. I think the one in the Wall Street Journal was perhaps the one with the boldest headline, which basically said the verge is in and remote learning did not work, which was interesting. Can we say that, Robin? What, what's your take? If we try to look at what you've tracked, we look at the surveys that have gotten some information from parents and teachers, has there been much teaching and learning over the last couple of months in this country or not? I think, you know, the interesting question here is compared to what, you know, without computer technology, let's, um, let's just, you know, take a moment to recognize kids wouldn't have any have had any opportunity to learn in a pandemic being home. Uh, they would have been completely dependent on what books their parents had on the shelves, right? So I've been of the view from the start that something is better than nothing, and that we better get going getting the something as good as possible. Now, that said, um, it was messy. Nobody was prepared for this. There wasn't any roadmap. There's been a lot of figuring this out as we go. And, you know, we've seen some parts of the country, some districts, some parents, some students uh, really grabbing onto this and making the most of it. But our data are showing that um, it's it's quite uneven, and even with the most generous interpretation, at this point in the spring, now that districts really have had time to adjust and do things differently, it's still not, you know, I think where anybody hopes we would have been Um you know, the opportunities for kids nationwide are spotty and thin and something like, by our count, 60 
85% or so of districts have something that you'd call kind of a, a really comprehensive learning plan in place mm-hmm. with curriculum, instruction, and some kind of progress monitoring. Mm-hmm. That feels like kind of a, a low bar and we're not doing great there. But for me, you know, the question really is, okay, where do we go from here? Where are we going to use the summer to its full extent of possibility? And then, you know, God help us when it comes to fall and all the complexities there. Absolutely. I know. Well, we've been talking about that a ton on our show here. I guess I'm just trying to figure out, you know, if if we're trying for the sake of history, for the sake of the larger issues we always talk about, even before the pandemic and afterwards about just the shape of our school system, you know, to start to get some estimate, you know, was it 10% of schools really knocked it out of the park? And 10% did nothing and the rest were in between. Can we get more granular? Maybe it's always going to be frustrating that we're never going to be able to know for sure what happened. And I'm also curious about this question about whether schools that just were doing great stuff before the pandemic, that sort of just had their act together, were they the same schools that more or less uh, you know, managed this crisis well also? And that the same dysfunction in so many of our systems, especially some of our big systems, you know, that, that they made all of this so much harder than maybe it should have been. Yeah, two great points. And to your first, um, what will we know? What do we know? We've taken a pretty rough cut at um, looking at district websites and, you know, seeing what's going on there. And we can get a little bit of information. But if you look under the hood in any of these districts, any teacher, any student parent will tell you it's, you know, a much more complex picture than what the district says on their website. So, you know, we've got a, um, a whole network of researchers around the country now putting heads together and trying to, uh, I'll just say, we're running this thing called the Evidence Project. And we're trying to get all the surveys um, that have been done together, go beyond the data that any one researcher could pull to try to make sense of this. So let's keep pushing there. But then on your other point of were the schools and the districts that moved ahead the ones that were already doing well? I think to a large extent, yes, that um, the things that make for great teaching in the classroom also make for great teaching in a virtual environment. I mean, that's just clear. And um, teachers that were struggling before are struggling even more in a virtual environment. One interesting thing that I've heard from from districts that were able to move forward quickly and put plans in place is that they already had good relationships with the stakeholders in their community. So their teachers union, their teachers, their parent community. And so when the crisis hit, they say they were able to pull people into a room and say, okay, this isn't going to be perfect. And we can't spend five weeks in committees figuring this out. So there's going to have to be some trust here. We're going to have to start something and move forward. And that's a good lesson for everybody. It's like, don't wait for the crisis to build those kinds of relationships and and, and a comfort with taking risk and innovating, I think, yeah. is the other thing. That is such a great point. And, the, and the, let's not spend five weeks in committees. I mean, this is what's always, I feel like, as reformers, we have a hard time articulating. But, you know, when, when we criticize, quote, the system, I think, you know, the people who work inside that system feel like we're criticizing them. And we don't mean to, right? We're trying to say, look, we, any of us who have spent any time inside a large bureaucracy, we just know how hard it is and that nobody inside those bureaucracies wants the system to be so slow and cumbersome, and you know, but it's really hard to fix it. And so when we try to say, well, look, the, these smaller schools or networks are, have been able to move quickly, we're not trying to say the people in them are better. We're just trying to say that they're just lucky because of scale or because of uh, some of the structural issues. They don't have to deal with the same, quite the same challenges. David, where are you right now? Like when you see some of these analyses come out from 
NWEA and others saying, you know, we're going to be looking at a huge amount of learning loss uh, that we're going to see achievement gaps widen even more. You know, you see uh, Chad Alderman did a great analysis looking backwards at some times in history here and in other countries when kids have missed a lot of school and, and just how that you, you can see the impacts uh, over the course of their lifetime in terms of earnings and other things. I mean, is, is that what we're looking at? That this is, you know, we're, we're talking about a lost generation based on what's happened the last couple of months? Or are you more optimistic? Where are you? I am not more optimistic. Um, I think the generation is half lost right now. And I would give almost anything to get people physically back in school buildings in the fall. That's the single, I mean, it's the single most determinative question in my mind. Um, Mm -hmm. We we simply can't expect any learning to occur otherwise um, in a lot of places. And um, it's it's all going to be uh, triage unless we can make that happen. I would put the price, you know... I would attach the the dollar value of a, a genuinely brilliant idea on that front. It you know it's worth hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars. Unfortunately, I just think it's. I'm still waiting to hear it. That the New York Times ran a great op-ed titled "How to Get Kids Back in School" a couple days ago. Mm-hmm. I got to the end of it. I had no idea how to get kids back in school. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, there was no question mark in the title, but I. I um, I read the whole thing and it confirmed my sense that nobody knows how to get kids back in school. One way maybe to put them back in school, uh, it's awfully hard to make that leap absent real information, but I'm on the verge of just saying we need to do it. Let's celebrate that that New York Times editorial from the editorial board quoted John Bailey at the American Enterprise Institute. Something probably doesn't happen very often, the New York Times quoting AEI in a positive way. So that was cool. Um, But no, it's true. And now here we have this mass experiment going on right now with these protests. If there is not a spike in COVID after these, at the very least, that should make us feel pretty good about some outdoor classrooms, right? In in September, the weather's nice. That's well put. I mean, it's a big if, and honestly, I'm pretty. Um, I, I mean, like everyone else, I'm waiting. I'm waiting to see what happens here. But I mean, at some point, kids' interests have to to come to the fore again. And I realize that's complicated by the rare complications associated with the disease for kids. It is, and so it's it's um, it's necessarily going to going to involve some parental choice. But th- there's just no way that we can say we we as a society that we care enough to gather in giant crowds um, and, mm-hmm. and protest a single horrific act, and it was horrific, and yet we're willing to sacrifice an entire generation of kids because we're not willing to take the same risks on their behalf. I just think yeah. that it's unacceptable to me. I don't know. I'm going to start speaking out about it, even though I really have no great ideas, and it sounds hypocritical coming from someone who's not a teacher, but well, I don't know what but, the alternative is. Well, let me put that to you, Robin. I mean, I think that's a great point, David. I mean, should we see these education leaders, superintendents, charter network leaders saying to parents and to teachers, look, we know there are risks, but we really want you back? Uh, because, you know, we're hearing all these surveys of parents and teachers saying, we're not coming back, you know, or we don't feel comfortable. And of course, if they don't send their kids or they don't show up for work, you know, whatever us policy wonks say doesn't matter. But do we want to, is that the kind of leadership we want to say to say, look, education is important and we're going to try to keep you as safe as possible. We can't guarantee that you're not going to get this virus, but it is not, but we need the kids to be in class learning. Is that what we want to see? I'm pretty concerned that people are not talking about the the cost that kids will incur, this generation of kids will incur mm-hmm. if we don't get them back learning quickly. On the other hand, I think um, there has to be some truth in advertising here. And 
not only is it realistic that that many families will not feel comfortable sending their kids back physically, but the number of teachers who have health risks themselves and will refuse mm-hmm. to come back is probably very high. And you know, we're we're trying to get numbers on that. I know John Bailey is is working on that as well. But the realistic picture for the fall is not pretty. And so Yes, leadership, whether it's state, district, whomever, has got to be, you know, kind of saying, like, this matters. And what we do in this moment matters for the next generation. And they've got to have a really compelling plan. It's not just going to be enough to say, like, yeah, we're reopening for business and we're doing an A-B schedule where kids come every other day. That that to me is not a strategic plan. We've got to really be honest about who are the kids who need to come back first Mm-hmm. And are going to need the most intense work to um, to identify where they are and what their needs are, and get really creative about how we address those needs. You know, I, it just can't be business as usual. All right, well said. We will leave it there. Thanks again, Robin, for coming on the show. As always, Robin Lake, the director of the Center for Reinventing Public Education. Hope you'll come back soon. And again, thanks for the great work you're doing tracking all of this. Oh, thanks so much, guys. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Olivia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. Happy to be here. Olivia Piontek, one of Fordham's finest, pinch hitting today for Amber on her Research Minute. And we're so excited to have you with us, Olivia. Tell us the truth. Before you came to Fordham, did you ever listen to the Education Gadfly show podcast? I'm going to have to say no on that one. <laughs> <laughs> what was the actual truth? Oh, come on. But, but you know, I, I know. But Listen, you're, now I'm an avid listener. But your advisor, yeah, I was going to say, I was going to ask you if now that you're at Fordham. Are you, After are you a tough one, one Mike. Yeah. I, I don't want to know the answer. Now. Now. <laughs> well, I, I do believe that your advisor uh, in grad school, Brian Casita, is a regular listener, right? Or an occasional listener? Yes. 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 So yes. there you go. Well, shout out to Brian Casita yeah. if you're listening. Excellent. <laughs> of course. And and this is a very prestigious slot that you get to be in. I mean, anybody can be the co-host like David. No, 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 no offense, David. No, true. It but, mostly consists of sitting in silence. Yes, exactly. And allowing or to saying, over. you know, the random naysay, mm-hmm. oh, listen here, I'm David with the opinion. Exactly. And this week is, is no different. In fact, I think you, you really took it up or down to another level, David, uh, with your pessimism, which, which was impressive. No, it's good. Yes. But, uh, I'm well, quite the flat cloud these days. Yes, yes. All right. Well, Olivia, what are you bringing to the Research Minute fans today? So we've got a working paper. Um, it's called Status, Growth, and Perceptions of School Quality by David Houston, Michael Henderson, Paul Peterson, and Marty West. And this is a nationally representative survey that's looking at how the provision of information about achievement status or achievement growth affects people's perceptions of their school's quality. So just as a refresher, achievement status is students' performance at a single point in time on like a standardized test like NAEP or MAP. Um, and achievement growth, on the other hand, measures the rate of improvement in students' academic performance over time. So while, you know, us in the ed policy and research worlds are pretty familiar with these terms, it's unclear whether the American public knows the difference between these two things, mm-hmm. um, which matters a bit because there's a growing body of literature that looks at how people's perceptions of school quality and the information they receive about their school quality um, affects where they decide to live, to move, which obviously has implications for property taxes, revenue, things like that. So with this study, they wanted to know three things. 
First, do American parents have an accurate understanding of their neighborhood school's quality? Second, does providing information about achievement status, growth, or both influence how they perceive the schools? And third, does more information about their school's performance influence the emphasis they place on certain um, educational objectives like social-emotional learning, character development, community involvement, things like that? They embedded their survey question into Ednext 2019 annual poll, and they asked the respondents a couple questions about grading their schools in their district on an AF scale, and they were split up into four different groups. The first group received no information, second group received just achievement status information, third received growth information, and the fourth received both pieces of information. Okay, so that's that for the methods. Oh, and then the researchers... Uh, attached respondents location to the district they lived in. So they're able to see like, are they accurately viewing their districts or rating their district school quality? Essentially. And they used the seeded data, right? Yeah, seeded data. And that's how they got information about the school's performance on status and growth and things like that. So the major takeaway was that first, Americans don't really know anything about achievement growth. They're much more familiar with achievement status, probably due to the visibility of things like NAEP um, and the, you know, massive publishing that goes into the NAEP scores when they come out. And the second takeaway is that when asked to give their schools a grade for status or growth, they tend to overestimate the district's status and more accurately estimate the district's growth, which is interesting because, you know, they don't really have that familiarity with the growth concept, but it's more intuitive, which is what the researchers were saying. And then third, when they were given information about status growth or both, people living in districts that did better on standardized tests were not likely to change their views of school quality. So even if their school's, you know, growth measure wasn't that strong in comparison to the national average, they still felt their school was performing better um, and gave their school a better grade. But when they only received information about growth, that changed their perception of school quality entirely. So they were more likely to grade their schools more accurately, were less likely to perceive it as a function of economic or demographic composition, which is interesting because in the control group, people were more likely to judge their school's quality based on race, socioeconomics, demographics, you know, of the district. And so it was a little bit less realistic of a perception of their school's actual quality and based on, you know, things that you can see. And then finally, and probably most interesting, when they were given more information about any of this, they were less likely to say that academics matter. So they were more likely to say things like social emotional learning and community involvement and stuff like that was more important, except if you're in a district that did really well. If you're Mm -hmm. in a district that did great, they were like, you know, academics are great. We should do more of that, (laughs) essentially. So everyone in the in the poor performing districts were like, you know what, let's scale back. Let's do more of the SEL. David's giving us a thumbs up. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. A lot to dig into here. And I will admit that I have many biases coming into this, and, and, and this confirms all of them, uh, which is that <laughs> parents, you know what we're really good at is rationalizing. Okay. I mean, we have chosen a school for our child. Most of us, by choosing a house or a condo or apartment, uh, it is hard to undo that choice. And so we rationalize and we find uh, evidence that tells us that we're good parents and we did a good job choosing a school. And if you give us information that might indicate that actually that that school or that district is not as good as, as you think it is, we will find a way to ignore that information. There you go, David. Yeah. That's it. I get to be the pessimist today. Uh, I just, <laughs> right? I mean, it just doesn't seem like it's just really hard to get parents to be, I mean, we have all this hope that parents are going to be driving change and yet it's so easy to rationalize. And we do the same thing when it comes to our own kids. You know, we ignore the evidence that they're behind. And so we tell pollsters, 90% of us say our kids are doing great. They're above grade level. 
Well, yeah. I mean, that strikes me as difficult to change, Mike. But, you know, I mean, everything you just said presumes a situation in which parents have already made their choice, right, based on the housing market or whatever. I, I feel like we're still working to get there, but I don't think it necessarily rules out the possibility of informed parents uh, incorporating this sort of information up front prior to receiving it. I do think it, it probably calls into question the notion that parents who mistakenly send their kid to, you know, a bad elementary school are going to pull them out of their elementary school in third grade after seeing their test scores. Realistically, parents aren't going to do that. They're going to rationalize. Given the costs associated with changing schools, you know, maybe they should be, honestly. I mean, it, it, it's not a, a costless transaction to move to a new school. But, you know, I don't think this necessarily rules out the possibility that at the, the traditional decision point that we like to talk about when we talk about charters and school choice, this sort of thing can matter. And I do think it's interesting. Olivia, make sure, I just want to make sure I, want, I got this right. I think what you're saying is basically parents already pretty much understand the level at which a school is achieving, right? But the growth information, they don't really have a good intuitive sense of that just from the demographics or, or the sort of neighborhood. Is that right? Yeah. And I think um, a more nuanced understanding and going back to the decision making point, you know, like where are we going to go, um, especially if it comes to, you know, moving to a new school district is that parents in this survey, at least were judging school districts more harshly um, and rating these schools lower based on their perceived composition demographically and socioeconomically, when often that wasn't really the case. Schools were doing better in terms of growth than a lot of parents were estimating them to do. Yeah. Um, so I think that has implications um, as well as far as providing more information to parents about what the schools are doing. Right. And and so both of you well well said that, you know, when parents are open to seeing this kind of information, which probably is when they're, you know, kids are going, you know, either they're, they're, they've got little toddlers and they're thinking about moving to the suburbs. Uh, they've got kids going into kindergarten. They've got kids going into middle school or high school. Those are all places where we can really try to get those parents at that time and get them to, you know, rethink their assumptions to, to not just go to the most affluent uh, school district or the school with the least diversity that happens to also have the highest test scores. Uh, but to say, you know, and, and I think that, you know, there was a great post the other day by somebody that was making the case for diverse schools and said, you know, my school's got a four on great schools. It's really much better than that. I think that maybe, you know, I don't know if that was in a state where great schools is still entirely focused on status. Uh, in some states, I think it's now half and half status, half growth. Uh, but, you know, making the case that, you know, be, because many of the kids are poor, they don't score very well, but actually the school's making strong progress over time. And and so if you care a lot about getting parents, including white parents, including upper middle class parents to choose more diverse schools, th this conversation matters a lot. And, and there is evidence, right, David, that in, in some other studies where they look at parents who are making choices, like through DC's, you know, my, my public school chooser app, when they have to do the common enrollment, that if you provide this kind of information, including the growth information, and you make it easy to understand, you can steer, steer parents towards these, uh, what, what we wonks would consider higher quality schools. Yeah, I think that's fair. I got to say, though, Mike, this whole, this whole conversation, it feels very 2019. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I hope we're, I hope this conversation is still relevant uh, two years from now. I guess my one question is whether this sort of information is actually more useful than ever to parents, assuming they get it, you know, in COVID circumstances, or if it's essentially become irrelevant until we get back yeah. to school. To me, no. it seems like it's more important than ever. If anything, it seems like the costs associated with switching schools have never been lower, and parents ought to know which schools are actually managing to serve kids right now. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I guess in, in some places, if you're in a city like DC, where there are lots of choices and you're allowed to, uh, you didn't have to move, you could choose them. I mean, it's different in a lot of America where, you know, it's still uh, real estate is is weighing you down, man, and the, and the mm-hmm. private schools. But no, look, I, I think that's fair. Look, the big decision this fall, obviously, is first and foremost, you're going to send your kid back to school. And if not, then what? Well, I'm going to push back on David a second, because there's, you know, mounting evidence that uh, more affluent districts are actually, you know, as predicted, providing their students with better online learning Mm -hmm. and remote instruction resources than the lower um, performing or, you know, less affluent districts. So that complicates matters if you're, you know, viewing it from this lens as well. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Olivia. And it seems to be both that obviously it's easier for those districts because those families tend to have the devices, high-speed internet, the parents are more likely to be at home, able to help uh, easier. But also just that these systems seem to be less dysfunctional, you know, or to say more positively that that the affluent districts, especially the small ones, tend to be fairly well-run. And so it's terrible. We have in this system of ours, we take kids who need the most, and unfortunately they tend to be, not average, not always, tend to be enrolled in the most dysfunctional districts. So those districts have it hard, no doubt, but they're also a mess and, and they couldn't get away. They couldn't, you know, they, they just couldn't. But truly 2020 folks. <laughs> <laughs> like you are really a ray of sunshine right now. <laughs> uh, look, some things are still uh, relevant, more relevant than ever. Right. I mean, well, how else can you read what we're reading? I mean, you know, big story today, uh, this week in the Wall Street Journal is, you know, the, the results are in, which isn't totally true, but the results are in and remote learning was a failure. And yeah, it's, it's hard it's for me to talk around reality. It's hard for me, though, to, to make a counter argument. We don't have great information, but what we have is, is not promising. Well, we will have to leave it there. Uh, but hey, this, this was fun, uh, Olivia. Really cool study. And thanks for coming on the show. I hope that you'll, you'll make it a, a regular appearance. Maybe at times you can even uh, push David out of his seat as the cover. Uh, maybe we can rename it to Olivia's Research Minute. Oh, <laughs> now, 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 now. Amber. Coming for you, Amber. Tell Amber. Nobody tell Amber. <laughs> all right. That is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.